Well, it's a great honour to address the Christians in Parliament's APPG, and I'm very grateful for the opportunity. Um, it's a special privilege to do so on the eve of COP26, as the UK hosts crucial global climate negotiations. As others, including Pope Francis, have noted, this is a Kairos moment, a time measured not in hours and years, but a turning point, a decisive hinge on which the future of our world turns. And I want to build on the excellent paper on environment and climate, Christian Foundations for Policymaking, produced for Christians in Parliament. That paper argues that the Bible and Christian theology provide firm foundations for radical action to reduce climate change and protect our environment. I agree wholeheartedly, and the paper summarises the biblical arc running from Genesis right through to Revelation, the arc of creation, fall and redemption, reminding us that the Christian gospel is never only about individual salvation, but is about God's good purposes for all that God has made. In that sense, that arc is foundational for all Christian engagement in politics because it shows God cares about everything, that we are to seek the values of God's kingdom here on earth as in heaven. And in environmental terms, it's the big story of a world made very good, entrusted to our care. Humanity also made very good, but so often in practice deeply flawed and tending towards self-centered impulses, leading to disastrous spiritual, societal and ecological consequences. Yet, it is also the story of a God who does not abandon us, but who comes in covenant love, in prophetic wisdom, and supremely in sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to enter into creaturely life, to become part of the story, to teach and show a different way, and through his death and resurrection, to offer hope, both for broken humanity and for a wounded, groaning creation. So in the light of that biblical overview, what difference can Christian politicians make to climate and environment policymaking? I want to dig deeper into the four principles for policymaking in the paper and suggest cross-party approaches to guide the engagement of Christian MPs and peers in this area. And in each case, I'm going to use a biblical character to illustrate something of what that might mean. So the first principle is love creation. We're very familiar with Jesus' summary of the law as loving God with our whole being and our neighbour as ourselves. That can ignore non-human creation unless we remember two crucial things. First, to love God means loving what God loves, and that includes the creation, all of it. Secondly, to love our neighbour means instrumentally caring for those ecosystems which allow our neighbours to flourish both now and for future generations. But also, more fundamentally, all creatures are in some sense our neighbours, created like us, receiving God's breath of life, part of what theologian Richard Borkham calls the community of creation. I know many of you in both houses are grieving deeply at the terrible murder of David Amos. Perhaps one of the reasons for his renowned commitment to animal welfare was, as a Catholic Christian, his deep sense of what Psalm 145 calls God's compassion for all that he has made. And my biblical character, as we think about loving creation, is Noah. His story has much to guide us at this time of climate crisis. 
someone who obeyed God's voice when others mocked the scale and urgency of his actions, somebody who included all living creatures in the ark of hope. The story tells us of a God with a peculiar concern for biodiversity conservation, living creatures of every kind included, not because they're useful to Noah, but simply so that their kinds might continue on the earth. God's covenant, shown through the rainbow, is so much bigger than humanity. It includes every living creature. And even in one verse, it's described as my covenant with the earth. It compels us to love creation for its own sake, not simply for what it does to serve human needs. Now in policy terms, that points us to the importance of human connection with nature. Something that the pandemic has pointed to for some, but not for all. I've lived for more than 35 years in multi-ethnic and urban contexts, first in Bradford, and then more recently in Southall in London. I have experienced the reality of what's sometimes called nature deficit disorder. Whole communities so distanced from love of nature that they struggle to relate to environmental issues at all. And so questions, does our education policy encourage schools to foster a deep sense of our utter dependence on nature? Do we value and measure not only skills and technologies for the labor market, but the softer yet crucial values of knowing our places, of knowing how we fit in within nature as creatures within a delicately balanced and fragile ecosystem? And what about our economic policies? Can we find a better way of measuring flourishing than the narrow targets of GDP? Can we discover metrics of human, physical and mental health, of thriving ecosystem services, of improvements to biodiversity, of resilience towards climate change? Secondly, the second principle is to recognize the root cause of environmental problems. And the Bible suggests the root cause of environmental problems is quite simply sin. In our global work in Arusha, we increasingly find international bodies like WWF and IUCN, the World Conservation Union, coming to us because they recognize that we need spiritual and ethical resources to change human behavior at the scale that is needed. Of course, we need good science, we need innovative technology, we need public education too. But at a deeper level, it is the human heart that needs to change if we are to see a deep transformation in our relationship with nature. And taking sin seriously means being wise to the dangers of hypocrisy when speeches aren't always matched by cross-cutting policies. It means being aware of vested interests, of hidden agendas, of greenwashing, my perhaps surprising choice as a Bible character here is the teenage mother of Jesus, Mary, in her words in the Magnificat in Luke 1, where she calls out the proud, the powerful, and the wealthy. Now, I hesitate for all kinds of reasons to put Greta Thunberg in the same category as Mary, but when she spoke out with such passion at Davos and to the UN, I was suddenly reminded of her teenage precursor. And this summer, I've been struck by the Young Christian Climate Network with their relay from the G7 in Cornwall to COP26 in Glasgow. There's a simplicity, clarity, and purity in the voices of young people 
who see right to the heart of the issues and point out often very uncomfortably the compromises that our generations have made. The reality of human sin means that we need policies that do not let self-interest destroy the planet for future generations. Self-regulation is simply not enough when it comes to deep-rooted sinfulness. We need environmental legislation that encourages transparent reporting, that exposes the offshoring of pollution, of pollution and carbon emissions. We need to ensure our policies are consistent. We cannot have new coal, oil or gas when the science is unequivocal that a rapid transition away from fossil fuels is critical in avoiding complete climate breakdown. Trusting in technologies such as carbon capture and storage, which at large scale are still unproven, is a deeply problematic way of trying to kick hard decisions further down the road. Understanding the reality of sin means recognizing that consumers and business tend to choose easy and selfish options. So we need both carrot and stick, both positive incentivizing and penalizing through taxation. If we are to persuade people to insulate homes and workplaces, to shift to electric vehicles and public transport, and to avoid casual personal air travel. The third principle is to love our neighbors, particularly the poor and vulnerable. As the nation that gave birth to the Industrial Revolution and the large-scale use of fossil fuels that fed that and built its wealth upon them and upon a global system of trade and empire, I believe we have particular historic moral responsibilities. Today, we know that many countries with the smallest historic carbon emissions bear the brunt of climate impacts, yet simultaneously are seeking to rise above poverty as Christians, we are part of a global community, most of whom live in the global south and who face poverty and climate uncertainty. We are called to seek the face of Christ amongst the vulnerable, the marginalized and the refugee. These are our sisters and brothers made in God's image. Even within our own nation, environmental injustice is real and affects deprived urban communities, the rural poor, including many farmers, and people of color most severely. We all know the story of Joseph and his famous Technicolor Dreamcoat. I want to take one episode from that story when he interprets Pharaoh's dream of seven thin cows devouring seven fat ones. It's an episode that speaks directly to our context where decades of prosperity and growth are now threatened by a looming global climate crisis an issue of inequality, but also of national security. The latest MOD report on global strategic trends identifies the increasing disruption and cost of climate change as its number one focus area with strategic implications. Adaptation and mitigation are critical to ensuring our national security. Arguably, nations refusing to address their coal and oil outputs, even friendly nations such as Australia, Norway, India, Saudi Arabia, may in time become a greater threat to global security than rogue states such as North Korea and Iran. In that context, our primary calling as Christians is like Joseph in Egypt, to seek security through careful stewardship and management of the resources that we have, but also to show generosity 
and international statesmanship in sharing with those nations in need. Joseph's decision to allow the nations to come to Egypt to buy grain speaks directly to the need for adequate climate finance. The target of $100 billion agreed at Paris has just been rolled back to 2023, which I assure you is causing anger and upset, not only amongst the nations most affected by climate chaos, but amongst many Christians here in the UK, for whom our treatment of the most vulnerable is a primary political yardstick. Finally, the fourth principle is to be a prophetic voice. Prophets are never comfortable figures. And I could choose any number of examples, but I'm gonna plump for John the Baptist. He stood on the margins of the mainstream. He refused to be swayed by public opinion. He spoke truth to power, even at great personal cost. The Christians in Parliament paper on environment and climate speaks of the unique place of Christian hope, holding on to the reality of now, the present crisis and human brokenness, and yet also the reality of not yet, of God's promises to renew and redeem, the possibility of change. I'd suggest there's a particular role for Christians in Parliament in looking beyond party rhetoric and seeing the big picture, a big picture that's both global and long-term. And that may mean helping maintain cross-party consensus around the Climate Change Act and the 2019 Net Zero legislation. This has to be an issue that is far bigger than what divides us. It may mean ensuring that often unheard voices are represented in Parliament. Those of young people terrified about the future. Those of our global neighbours amplifying stories from Tier Fund, Christian Aid, Catholic, Russia, and others who are working with people around the world. And amplifying the stories of church members who across political lines are increase, increasingly vocal in this space. You'll probably all be aware that the Church of England has committed to net zero by 2030, a target imposed not from on high, but pushed through by grassroots support in General Synod. You may also have heard of EcoChurch, run by my colleagues in Arusha, UK, which has become the fastest growing church movement in England and Wales, growing from zero to over 4,000 registered churches in under six years. Being a prophetic voice means holding the big picture and ensuring that climate solutions do not damage human well-being or biodiversity. The issues of the climate and biodiversity crises can only be handled together and in tandem with issues of global inequality. The Pope's encyclical Laudato Si encaptures that vision of integral ecology brilliantly, and I warmly commend it. At a more detailed policy level, and I've asked this to be shared with those interested, I'd also point out an excellent policy paper on nature-based solutions to climate change, produced by some of my colleagues in Arusha from around the world. It goes into far more detail than I can here, and advocates detailed policy suggestions based on implicit biblical principles. So we need to love creation, following the example of Noah. We need to recognize the root cause of environmental problems, following the example of Mary. We need to love our neighbors, particularly the poor and vulnerable, following the example of Joseph. And we need to be a prophetic voice following the example of John the Baptist.